All right, so as we get started um, tonight, first thing I want to do is I have to correct myself from last week. So I, I made an error, a pretty bad error last week in, in the sermon. And um, so I, I need to start, start with an apology. Um, in the sermon, I, um, I said that Jesus cursed an olive tree. And, and this week I was listening back through the sermon for some stuff and I go, wait a second. Jesus didn't curse an olive tree. He cursed a fig tree. It was a fig tree. And so I was totally wrong. And I made a point out of that and everything. And so I want to apologize for mishandling God's word. Now, it may seem insignificant. You might say, well, it's still a tree. Jesus cursed it. It's still a point. Um, but no, I still mishandled God's word in that situation. It's a deep trust and responsibility um, to handle God's, rightly, God's word rightly. And I didn't double check my work. I assumed I knew what I was talking about and taught an error. And I want to own that and apologize um, to that. So I think we can uh, learn a lesson from that is that we can have preconceived notions that allow us to open the text, to look at it and see a completely different word than is actually there. Um, and so we need to evaluate um, ourselves and, and check our work. So um, my apologies for that and hope we learn our lessons. I learned my lesson and also double check me. Anybody who comes to you with God's word um, uh, comes to you trying to, to teach you God's word, you need to be looking at it yourself um, because God's word is true um, and it is infallible and without error, uh, but I am but a man and I'm very fallible and, and full of errors. So um, the authority is in the word of God, um, not myself. And so I wanted to apologize for that, get that right up front. And so um, there you go. So um, now we'll move on uh, to the end of Romans chapter 11 um, here this week. And so we could have just tacked this last three verses on to the end of last week's message and, and just caught it good, been done with Romans chapter 11 and, and moved on with things. <clears throat> but I wanted to leave these last three verses um, in there for their own sermon, their own standalone sermon. Because what we see in these final verses of Romans chapter 11 is really what the, the goal of it's all about. It's what the goal of all the scripture is about. It's what the goal of the gospel is about. It's what the goal of our gatherings together um, is about. And that's what is the purpose of all things? Is there a purpose of all things? What is your purpose? The Westminster Catechism and the Baptist Catech the Westminster Catechism puts this as question number one. The Baptist Catechism puts it in question two, but it asks this question: What is the chief end of man? What is the chief goal or purpose of man? And it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so what we see in these final verses is that the goal of everything, the goal of all knowledge of God and knowledge of, of doctrine in the gospel is God's glory and our enjoyment of that. And, and I'm going to put forth today is that that's essentially the definition of worship. It's seeing the glory of God and responding to it appropriately, which is with adoration and admiration and obedience, all these things together culminates into this thing we call worship. 
One thing that has been pointed out about this Westminster Catechism question, um, John Piper, for example, points this out, is that it shows us that God's glory and your joy are not at odds. So, so often you think that, okay, this is for God's glory, which means I'm missing out. Like, I'm going to take the short end of the stick so that God gets glory. And that's not what we're presented with in Scripture. Rather, we see that God's glory and our joy are not at odds. Rather, they're meant to be the same thing. When our joy is found in His glory. And that there, there's no greater place for us to place our joy or find our joy than in the, the glory of God um, itself. In fact, the more you know the glory of God, the deeper your capacity for joy goes. I don't know if you ever thought about that, about your capacity for joy. Have you ever thought about that you have a capacity for joy? That there's a certain level of joy that you can obtain and you maxed out? What I want to encourage you to think about tonight is that you can have a deeper and fuller capacity for joy. And that comes the more you know God because He is infinite in His glory. There, there's an infinite source of joy. And so when we turn to Him, our capacity for joy uh, increases in that. So if you feel like you, you've maxed out, you're, you've maxed out your joy level and you can't go any further, and it's really not that great. You thought there would be more to it. I want to encourage you to, to behold your God, to look to God, and you will find your joy and your capacity for joy even greater. So last week, as I said, we finished the doctrinal and theological section of the book of Romans. Um, and so in these last verses of the theological section, we see an example of what all of this deep, rich theology is for. We see its end, its telos, its goal, and that is worship. It's worship. Paul has spent 10 chapters, 11 chapters, unpacking the glories of the gospel and the glories of God's wisdom and bringing all these things together so that he remains just and forgiving sinners so that he orchestrates all things that come to pass for his glory and for the good of those who are called by him. Like all this stuff works together and it's taken him 11 chapters to get through it all. And by the time Paul gets to the end of chapter 11, he sort of just can't go any further and just explodes into worship, into praise, into doxology. And so that's what we will see in these last verses. So let's stand together and we'll read... Um, verses 33 through 36. This is God's word. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word once again, we ask that you give us eyes to see it as it truly is. That you would give us the ability to comprehend just a fraction of your glory. 
for us. We see even in this text that you, that you are unsearchable, that you are without beginning or end, and it would be impossible for us to, to seek you out and come to, to your end. So God, we ask that you just show us some of your glory tonight as you've revealed it in your Son, and that our lives would be transformed through it more into His image, that we would love you more, that our joy would be increased, and that we would be moved to mission uh, by this glimpse of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. <clears throat> so the title of the sermon tonight is The End of Theology. The End of Theology. The, and then two points. The, the right end and your end will be point one. And point two is a God-centered, holistic worldview. This is two things we're going to look at um, together in the Word. So when I say the end of theology, when I first hear that, I think, okay, theology's over. You know, it's a story about a time when theology will be no more. Right? That's, that's the end of it. It's over. Well, that's not what I mean by the end of theology in this, this way. I mean it in the same way that the catechism means it. What's the goal? What's the purpose? And this is a, a word you need to know. The telos. What's the telos? This is the Greek word for end. And it, it, it encompasses this idea that it's the thing that you're aiming at. Like it's, it's the destination and you're going towards it. It's the telos. What are you focused on? So what is the purpose? What is the focus? What is the, the goal of theology? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So we'll look at it in two points, as I said. So first, uh, the right end. The right end. So what, there's a right goal in theology, and then there's a wrong goal. There, there's a myriad of wrong goals, actually. So there's a right end and several uh, wrong ends. And so we want to make sure that we're going towards the right destination, the right telos. So true biblical theology. So what is theology? Theology is simply the knowledge of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's theology. The knowledge of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You might say, does that require a bunch of big words and thick books? It doesn't require it, but sometimes those help. But when you boil it down to its basics, it's theos logos, words about God. Everyone, as R.C. Sproul was prone uh, to point out, everyone is a theologian. Right? You might think, ah, no, I'm not. I've not studied theology. But you have knowledge of God. You have some sort of doctrine of God. Even an atheist is a theologian. They have one chief doctrine of God. He does not exist. Actually, Doug Wilson says atheists have two doctrines of God. One, he does not exist. Two, I hate him. But what I'm getting at is, is theos logos, words about God. And we all have those. There's a knowledge that comes of God. But there's, when we think about what that means, is if you think, about, well, who is God? If someone says to you, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. We don't need theology. We just need Jesus. Jesus. Can't we just have Jesus and not theology? The minute you say, well, tell me about Jesus. Who's Jesus? You just ask the theological question. And if they answer that question, they have to answer that question with theology. 
right? So theology is inescapable for anyone, especially someone of faith. Because the minute, did you say Jesus is the son of God? Okay, what does that mean? That God like give birth to him? Well, no, no, he was born of a virgin. He's eternally existent. Oh, you're talking about theology, right? So you can have little knowledge of God or you can have a lot of knowledge of God. And what I want you to see is your joy, your stability in life depends on how much of that knowledge of God you have. The more you know of God, the deeper your capacity for joy in God. The more you know about God, the more you will withstand and endure hardships of life because you have a solid foundation. You're not just standing on a little twig, but you have a mountain beneath your feet. And Paul has demonstrated that through the book of Romans. As you've seen, it's a rich book. We've gone through it at like hyperspeed. And there's so much there. There's so much there. We could spend years mining the depth of just this one book of the Bible, just this one aspect of God's revelation of himself. And when we see the way Paul works through this, inspired by the Spirit, that he reaches that end, that right end. As he's teaching, as he's explaining this faith, he ends and he can't go anymore. And he just, he just, he just moves in the doxology and he says, oh, the depths and the riches of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He just can't go any further. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable, which means like uh, incapable of searching out are his ways. Right? He got to the point where he's like, wow, God is amazing. He's bigger than I can even get my head around. And I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words and it's still blowing me away, is what he's saying. And so true biblical theology must do something to you. If you're going in the right direction, it must do something to you. God's revelation of himself is meant to take you somewhere. It's meant to evoke a response from you. If you have truly beheld the glory of God with spirit-wrought faith, you will respond with worship. So, what is that right end of, of worship? It is the goal, let's put it this way, the goal of theology or the right end of theology is doxology. Two words, very easy to remember. The goal of theology is doxology. The goal of theology is not boasting in how much you know. It's not defeating people in arguments it's not simple head knowledge. But the right end or goal of theology is doxology. So what is doxology? Doxa is the Greek word for praise or glory or worship. <coughs> so it's, it's in, in logos again for, for words. So it's doxology, doxa, logos. It's words of glory, words of praise. And so the end of words about God is words of praise. You see how that works? Words of glory. Worship. So what is worship? Worship 
has been defined so many different ways. You can, you can think, about, think about it, but I like this one simple definition because it works with all types of worship. It doesn't work just with Christian worship. It works with all types of worship. And that is this, that worship is the response to a revelation of glory. The response to a revelation of glory. You see something glorious and you respond to it, acknowledging that glory, acknowledging the worth of that thing. So our English word for worship is based from an old English word that was something to the effect of worthship. Worthship. So you're acknowledging the worth of something. Okay? And that is the response to something you see. You see something, you say, this is beautiful, this is valuable, this is rare, this is worthy, and you respond to it acknowledging that worthiness. That's worship. And we all do this instinctively. We were made to respond to glory in this particular way. Here's an example that, that you might be able to relate to. It's the very end of the championship football game. Your favorite team throws a Hail Mary pass and he catches it in the end zone just before the clock strikes zero. What do you do? You jump out of your seat and you praise the glory that you just saw because that's rare. That took skill. That was beautiful, right? No one had to stand up to you and say, now for the call to worship. <laughs> you saw the glory and you respond to it. And you say, that was worthy. That's worthy of my praise. Right? That was worthy of me taking off my shirt and painting an A on my chest. <laughs> Nothing is worthy of that. <laughs> but we get that instinctively. God created us to do that. To, to see his glory and respond to it and acknowledging the worth of it. Right. That's the way he made us. And because we have fallen. We suppress the truth about God and we exchange his glory. For the things that he's created for lesser things like we, we go around looking for lesser things to acknowledge and to glorify because we're in moral rebellion against God and we would rather worship other things than him. It's not that we don't worship, we just worship the wrong things, you see? And so that's important when you're on, you're on campus or you're evangelizing someone who, who claims to be an atheist or an unbeliever of any variety, is, is to ask yourself the question, what are they worshiping? Where are their affections? What glory are they chasing after? And if you can figure that out with them, you can show them that, wait a second, that is insufficient. It's actually not satisfying you like you would want. And let me show you how the true and living God through the person of Jesus Christ meets that longing that you have and how he's so much better for that. So worship is at the center of all of these things because that's the goal of God's revelation of himself. He wants us to see him and go, wow. That's the way I teach worship to kids. What is glory? That's a hard word to define. Glory. And here's how I explain it to kids. Glory is that thing about something that makes you say, wow. Wow, that's amazing. 
That's, that's glory. It, it's something like weight, heaviness, gravitas. It's, glory is glory. It's that thing that makes you say, wow. And God is full of it. Right? The angels in heaven around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with what? His glory. John Piper talks about this. And, and he, said, he would say, you, you would think, the angels would say, holy, 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 it's Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his holiness. But that's not what they say. They say the earth is full of his glory. And so, so Piper kind of comes to the conclusion, and that, that means that the glory is this public manifestation of the holiness of God. Glory is when the holiness, the intrinsic holiness of God goes public. And you see it. That is glory. And we were meant to respond to the glory that we have seen. So when you respond appropriately to the glory of God as he has revealed himself, that response is worship. And that is the goal of theology. Now, Paul, when he reaches this goal, when he reaches this pinnacle <coughs> and, and moves into doxology, he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the riches of God. Riches is one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it a ton of times. I should have counted them, but he uses it a ton of times in all of his uh, writing. And basically he uses this word anytime he wants to describe the perfections of God. It's like he describes it in terms of riches, like it's full. It's, it's riches. The word, here's some, it'd be better if I just give you some examples. He might say, the riches of his mercy and grace. Or he, he'll say the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Right, these are things that are in God that are just like full and abundant. He's rich in these things. He's not lacking at all, right? That's the communication. The riches of his glory we see elsewhere in Scripture. So this is a simple way of putting it. When, when Paul says, oh, the riches of God, He's essentially saying that there is plenty of glory to respond to. His divine nature, his character, his works, all of these things are there for us to behold and to respond to with worship. If we rewind all the way back to the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, we talked about Paul saying that, that he is writing about the gospel of God. We talked about how the gospel itself is God's revelation of himself. And so the whole point of the gospel is to be a revelation of the glory of God. So that the gospel is not meant just to be a, something that we sort of um, actualize in our life in order to be saved, but it is something that is meant to move us to be worshipers of God. 1 Timothy 1 uh, chapter 11, Paul refers to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the blessed God. That's the word makarios there, which means something like happy. So part of the gospel, what the gospel is, is about the glory of the, the God, the happy God, our God. You think about God like that, that he is the, the happy God, he's the blessed God, and he's given us this good news that is Welcome, welcoming us into who he is. That's awesome. Hebrews 1.3 speaks of Jesus as the 
radiance of the glory of God. So Jesus, well, what is something that radiates? It's something that it comes out of a source, right? It radiates like heat radiates from the sun. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so if you want to see and behold the fullness of the glory of God, you behold it in Jesus. So this is important to point out because uh, you can't truly know the glory of God and not know Jesus. You see? Because he's the radiance of the glory of God. You can't say, I, I, I know God and his glory and his greatness and not know Jesus. It's not possible. That would be like saying, I know the sun without feeling its heat. So that's the right end of theology. The right end is worship of the true and living God as he's revealed himself in his word, in the gospel, and, primarily, and, and most uh, preeminently in his son Jesus. So what about your end? The right end and your end. In this case, I mean your end, not your telos, not your goal, but you coming to an end of yourself, you, you reaching your limits. Because when you dig into the mind that is God, you'll never come to his end, but you will quickly come to your end. Right. When you start looking deeply and more and more deeply into who God is, you'll start realizing that he is far greater than I am. That, that I am but dust. I'm a mist, a vapor that, that vanishes. I'm like grass that dries up, that grows up and then dries up in the sun and dies, comes quickly to an end. But God is from everlasting to everlasting. He's so much greater than me. He's so much more beautiful, more powerful, more just, more wise. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing. So, so I want to point out three areas in which when you dig into God and you consider who God is and this theology of God, where you'll find your end coming from this passage. First, you'll come to an end of your knowledge. <clears throat> when you compare yourself with God, one of the first things you'll realize is God is infinite in his knowledge. And I am lacking in my knowledge. When I thought I knew a lot, I realized how little I know in comparison to him. That God has infinite knowledge to create and sustain all things. And I barely have knowledge to spell infinite. Next, you'll see the wisdom. Right? Because he says... Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God has ability to work all of these countless intricacies together in perfect harmony according to his will. That's what we should have seen as we're tracking with Paul in Romans here, is that all these things that are going on in the world, just the fact, the mere fact that you can make this statement that um, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. The fact that you can make that statement, think about all that God has to do to make that statement work. Let's take one thing. Let's take the birth of Jesus Christ, one historic event. 
the birth of Jesus Christ, think about all the things that had to happen for that to happen on a human perspective. And that's not talk about the, the mystery of the incarnation, how God could take, come, uh, take on flesh, but let's think about it just for a mere human nature side of things. If you read the genealogy of Jesus, there's lots of crazy stories in his family tree, right? Let's think about the, 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 um, the fact um, that one of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmas was a Canaanite prostitute who let three spies come in, Jewish uh, Israelite spies come in the city. And because she was kind to them and hospitable to them, God spared her. And she's grandma of Jesus. That could have went all sorts of ways, right? That's just one. Let's, let's look at the issues of Herod trying to kill all the baby boys who were born. All the timing of his flight to Egypt. All these things surrounding. Then these are just surface level things that we know about, right? Think about all the interwoven historical intricacies that have to work together for these things to happen. And it had to happen because it was prophesied. And it had to happen for us to be saved. Right? So that's just one thing. Now let's multiply that by the thousands of intricacies that are in the Bible and then multiply that by the thousands that we know that we experience in our everyday lives. And it is well within God's wisdom to work all those things together in perfect harmony according to His will. And so we should see these things and go, wow, what wisdom, what wisdom. I remember the, the, one of the things that really blew me away as I really started studying the gospel more deeply. <clears throat> and it was this issue of how does God remain just in justifying sinners? The, the idea of imputation, where my sin is, is accredited to Christ and he is a substitute and bears the punishment for that sin, and his righteousness is imputed to me and accounted to me, and I'm accepted righteous that way, that God remains just in his punishment of sin and still is able to show mercy to sinners. Putting those two things that seem to be contradictory together, I remember when I, when I saw it, I was like, whoa, that is amazing. Like, I wouldn't even have thought to care that that was the case. Because my standard of justice is so low, right? And there's another issue where God is so much higher than us. I'd have been like, I'll just sweep it under a rug. Forget about it. But God's like, no, I'm just. Sin must go punished. It, it can't be swept under a rug. It must be dealt with. It's, a, it's an affront. It's a violation of my holiness, and I must deal with it. It's what God says, because he's just and I'm not. And so this is another way in which we see God's wisdom is so much greater than ours and we come to an end of ourselves. And the final is your sufficiency. You come to an end of your sufficiency. Meaning, you've seen God's complete self-sufficiency and you find your sufficiency in Him. Right? There's so many things that we depend upon to live. We need food, we need drink, we need shelter, we need community. 
So many things. God needs only himself. And he's perfectly satisfied and full and overflowing with that. And so what that does is say, okay, if God needs nothing but himself, surely I don't need more than God. Surely I don't need God and this, God and that. I can be content and satisfied with God. Because he's content and satisfied with that. And he's so much greater than me. Right, you see? So we come to our end of ourselves, and what that does, that promotes this humility in us so that we see God, we behold his glory, and we fall on our faces, and we acknowledge him, and we worship him. You know that all the biblical words, not all of them, but most of the biblical words for worship, there's several, there's three or four different Greek and Hebrew words that we translate to worship in English. Most of those words have something to do with the image of prostration, of bowing down. For example, the Greek word proskenuo um, is the image of bowing. So any ancient person who read the Bible in its original language would have the image of someone bowing face down when they read what we read worship. We don't think of that, do we? We read the word worship and we think of this. I can sing of your love forever. Right? We think of that. But the original readers of these biblical texts would have had the image of someone bowing before a mighty king. Like on their face, bowing before a mighty king. We'd see these in ancient writings and pictures. There was basically, the, the, the more of a social difference there was between the person and the king who you're uh, revering, or you're, the lower you would go. Right? So if someone was more of an equal to you, you may, not, you may not bow all the way down, but if someone was a great king and you're a peasant, then you're on your face flat on the ground. You're prostrate. And this is the image that, that all the readers of the biblical text in their original languages would, would have obviously got just by reading the word itself. Because this is what true knowledge of God does to us. It brings us to the end of ourselves. And I would sort of challenge you with this. Until you've come to the end of yourself in encountering and contemplating God, you've not yet scratched the surface of knowing Him. If you think you can know God and encounter Him and, and not just be completely undone by His glory, then I would argue that you barely even know Him. Because He's an all-consuming fire. Every person in Scripture who has come into an encounter of God and His glory has left radically changed. Look at Isaiah. I'm undone. I'm undone in His presence. Look at the man who wrote this text. The book of Romans. The Apostle Paul. Completely radically changed by a true encounter of God's presence. See, now there was a time where he said he knew God. But he didn't know him in Jesus Christ. He said he knew the glory of God. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Of the tribe of Benjamin, right? He knew God. He had plenty of head knowledge. He was trained by Gamaliel, who was one of the like top rabbis um, in this time. So he, he went to Harvard. But he was proud. 
He, he, he hated those who God loved, which means he didn't know God at all. And, but when he encountered the true and living God through the person of Jesus Christ, he was radically changed. He became a new creation. He came to an end of himself. And now he says, I'm the chief of sinners. There's, there's no good in me. Right? There's this, Paul came to an end of himself, which was that he had reached the desired end of the knowledge of God in the gospel. So as we close with this, uh, this point here, what's the right end of theology? I was Four points of application. How, how much do you know of God? Could you fill up an index card with theological statements of God? I think you could. If you thought about it, you could do that. Could you fill up an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper? Front and back, if you thought about it. How much could you fill up? How much do you know of God? And, and if you're dissatisfied with your answer to that question, I just want to uh, and challenge you with this. How much do you love him? Is your lack of knowledge of God related to your lack of love for God? I think the answer to that is yes. But it also goes both ways. Maybe your lack of love for God is due to your lack of knowledge of God. Maybe because you haven't beheld his glory your affections haven't been ignited for God so maybe what you need to do is you need to worship the Lord you need to get down on your knees and you need to ask the Lord show me your glory in your word I want to love you more I admit my my affections for you could be way higher than they are right now that there are other things that I love more than you I don't want it to be that way Lord Will you show me your glory in your word? And you open the Bible and you read. The Lord will answer that prayer. Second point is find your peace and joy in your insufficiency and in his complete sufficiency. Humble yourself. Find your joy in knowing that you are insufficient, but that God is completely sufficient for you. Number three, then trust God. Trust Him. He is sufficient. He is infinitely wise. He has infinite knowledge. Trust Him. And then the fourth point is that this worship of God includes obedience. Includes obedience of God. If you said this is the Almighty God who is all wise and all good and all knowing and he's for me, he's given me his son, and all these things. Right response to that is worship, which includes obedience to his commands. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the last, last thing here. I want to talk about verse 36. In this verse 36, this is really what Coram Deo Christian Fellowship is all about. Uh, this is that, that sort of um, second core value of the holistic worldview. That we want a, a God-centered holistic worldview. <clears throat> Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
For from him, through him, and to him are what? All things. All things. Let's look at this. From him. This means that God is the source of all things. He's the principium. He is the beginning. He's the reference point. He is the thing that is before all other things. And he defines everything. All things are from him. Through him, he brings all things to pass according to the eternal counsel of his will. He ordains the means as well as the ends, as we saw in chapter 10. And to him, it's all for his glory, from the smallest subatomic particle to the orbits of a hundred million galaxies. It all exists to bring him praise, to be a reflection of his glory. And I had this thought. If all of this, if the heavens and earth declare his glory, if all of the, the beauty and majesty that we see in the world that God has made, if all of this exists to be a reflection of his glory, imagine how much glory is actually in God. Like when you look up into the night sky and you behold that glory, that is but a reflection of the glory of God. Imagine how glorious God himself is. Which is why it ends with, to him be glory forever. You, you can never reach the end of glorifying God, all that he is due, all that he is owed. So to him be glory forever. And so like I said, this is the heart of Coram Deo, Christian fellowship. That we would live our lives in such a way that we, because we know that all things are from him, through him, and to him, that we would live in line with that. That we would receive all things as coming from him. That we would realize that he's working through us and for us. And that we would offer our lives to him for his glory. So we'll close with this last point. Go now and live, Coram Deo. Your God is the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And his glory is forever. And it is his glory to give you himself. He has forgiven your sin and clothed you in robes of righteousness. He's promised by his sovereign word that all things work together for your good. That means that every millisecond of your experience is totally defined by grace. Therefore, you can leave from this place tonight and joyfully live before the face of your God. You can see and seek his glory in every little thing because you know that it is there. Your work becomes his work through you. Your joy is his joy in you. And even in your suffering, you conquer because you more intimately know the sufferings of your Savior. He did not spare his son. Will he not also with him give us all things? And he will because they're his to give. So as you go from this last Sabbath dinner of the year, go in faith, go without fear, and go with Coram Deo. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been so kind to us to reveal your glory to us. God, when we so often prefer the darkness over your light, 
that we turn our backs on the brightness of your glory and worship idols of our own hands. That we have offended your glory in such a way and yet you still loved us and saved us and cherish us and, and, and make us into the image of Jesus by your grace. May we never lose the wonder of that. God, I pray that as we have uh, looked deeply into your word over the last two semesters from Romans 1 through 11 and considered the glories of the gospel and your grace for sinners, that we wouldn't leave from this time uh, simply with more head knowledge and more knowledge of theology and not arrive at the destination that you desire us to go and give you glory with our lives. God, I pray that each person here would build their lives upon the sure foundation of Christ, your glory in Him and your glory in all things. And God, I pray that you would uh, bless us, that you would make us even more abundantly full of the joy that, that is in Christ and the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore. And God, I pray that this organization on campus would be founded upon this, that our goal in all things is to magnify your glory. And God, and that we would live in such a way that we make it obvious that you are king, and that you are Lord over every sphere of human existence, even this university. And God, I pray that you bless us as we go through the summer, that you give us a new perspective and new eyes to behold the world that you have made, that our joy and your goodness would be full. And I pray that you bring us back together in the fall on this campus with uh, new life, new energy, excitement, um, new zeal, a new boldness to take the message of Christ um, into dark corners so that your light would shine there. And I, I ask that you uh, bless us and be with us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.